is a continuation of, of what we were looking at last week. And that is Jesus brought the, his 12 together and he said, go out. And he gave them some instructions. Don't take money. Don't take a bag. Don't take this. Don't take that. So everyone's up to date now, right? Don't you wish they would have done that in school? I would have loved it. Uh, I wasn't here yesterday. Can you tell me what happened? Do they do that nowadays? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. So everyone's on the same page. Jesus sends some, giving us a few more instructions of what's going to happen when they're going to get sent out. There are some interesting symbolisms in here that are worth noting. He said, go out like doves. Doves is, whenever you see doves, you're talking about purity, gentleness. A lot of times in the New Testament, it means Holy Spirit, which of course is gentleness. And then he talked about being wise as snakes and harmless as doves. Everyone stared at me like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I hope I do. A snake is kind of interesting because I don't like snakes. Does anyone here like snakes? Stephanie Crumbling has a snake. And we visited her one day and she pulls the snake out. She's like, oh, don't you want to touch the... No, that's all right. I don't mind them on my boots, but I do mind them slivering around me. But we always think negatively of snakes. And we've been taught that through the centuries. And it was our good friend Augustine around 400 who said, oh, that snake slash serpent, whichever word you want to use, in the Garden of Eden is so evil and it's Satan and all that. And that's when we started saying, oh, we don't like snakes. Snakes were actually considered very wise and very crafty in Jesus' day. The culture saw it differently. So snakes represented wisdom. So he's saying to go out as snakes and to be harmless as doves means to travel unarmed. I remember we talked about that last week, that if you're traveling on the road and it looks like you had some money or some nice clothing, that you would be robbed by the bandits and probably killed for it. You know, we're being wise. We're not going to do that. And we're going to also live a pure life while we're out there because like today, people were watching. And you hear that all throughout the rest of Matthew. Well, your disciples do this, but we do this, and they do this, and it goes on and on and on, and people are watching. Well, they, they were to be pure as doves in gentleness and kindness and show that to the people. Verse 23 also has this thing about a city of refuge. City of refuge is an interesting one where he says you go to one city and if they basically get angry and kick you out, you go to another city. And that's because, uh, interestingly enough, even though these cities were basically under the same control government-wise, if you were to violate the laws, let's say of Felton, we do have some laws here, don't we? Yeah, we do. And you violate the law, well, what you would do is get in your car and run up to Red Lion, because up in Red Lion, now we're talking about ancient days, but I'm using modern names, of course, because the police in Red Lion will not arrest you for what you did in Felton. Well, we live in a modern age, and they would. But back then, if you happen to be, uh, let's say, in Nazareth and you break the law for some reason, you would run to Capernaum and the people, the officials in Capernaum would say, yeah, that's cool, just don't do it here. City of Refuge was one of those. There were also refuge cities set up 
for those who were involved in an accident where a death occurred, because you were not allowed to take vengeance, if you had a family member who died, you know, back then they took the law into their own hands, they would go take vengeance, meaning they'd kill you. You were allowed to go to a refuge city where they were not allowed to touch you. And then you would have to go before a judge who would decide whether you were guilty or not. Verse 21 I always found interesting. The brother will betray, betray brother to death. It was a little, might have been a little different in the video. Do you ever wonder about that? Brother is going to go after brother and daughter and sister and everybody's going to like destroy each other. That actually comes from the prophet Micah, which I'm sure everybody's read. But I'll refresh your memory. It's an expression meaning chaos is going to occur. A lot of chaos. That's all that means. It doesn't mean that brother is going to attack brother in that sense. It's an old, old expression from way back in like 500 BC is when that expression came out. And you can find it in Micah, it's chapter 7, verse 6. This was a, a more difficult week trying to look at this passage and say, what is Jesus really saying about it? And I concentrated on the handed over, which is pretty, pretty much in the beginning of, of the passage. And I said, what's he talking about? And it occurred to me through the week that Jesus was saying to his disciples, as he says to us, that his interpretation of morality, what's moral, what's immoral, was going to be different, or was different, I should say, than the religious leadership's definition of morality. And I started to wonder, why would it be so different? What was going on here? And that's where that little chart came up, which I'll put up in a minute, because I started wondering and asking the question of, who determines what's moral and what's immoral? Who determines morality? And as I continued thinking about that, I made a couple calls to some folk I run the ideas past. It occurred to me, God defines morality. It's in the Bible. Just pick up the Bible, it's there. However, well, I should tell her, God defines morality for us. And now that we're living in, quote, modern times compared to Jesus' time, yeah, things are different. They didn't have computers and social media. They didn't have all that. But we certainly could take a look at what is occurring today in society and culture and say, what does the Bible say about the moral issue behind it? And then I kept thinking about that and said, okay, so... If Jesus defines morality, I'm sorry, if the Bible defines morality, that's God who gives us morality, then why was it different between when Jesus says, here's what your Bible mor morality is saying, and the religious leadership and the king and, of course, the Romans, they had their own morality. And what was happening was he's warning his disciples saying, when you start going out and talking about morality that I've taught you, how Jesus interprets, if you will, God's morality, which is pretty much by definition the same, that, that you're going to get handed over to authorities. Why would they do that? Well, all we have to do is look at the book of the prophets. 
And there's a whole bunch of them. And we know that each of these prophets were doing the same thing these disciples were doing. God said to them, the people are immoral. You're going to go tell them. Oh, that's a great job to have. Because you know what they did to prophets, Marcia? They killed them. That's what he's telling them. You're going to get handed over to these authorities to be thrown in jail. They're going to say you're blaspheming, etc., etc., because they're not going to like your morality. Remember that guy, John the Baptist? Yeah, the one that cut the head off? Yeah, what was his problem? He goes up to the king and he says, You can't marry your brother's wife. That's just immoral. I'm summarizing. And what did the king say? Enjoy my dungeon. And eventually he's killed. Why was he killed? Because he was pointing out something that God defined as immoral. I went, okay, well, okay, let's keep going with that. So we have God giving us morality definition in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And then we have Jesus who interprets that morality, and since he is God, it's, it fits and all comes together. Remember, he said, I came to, he came to fulfill the Torah, meaning give us the proper interpretation of that morality that God has defined. To fulfill the prophets, by the way, is going to be Easter, actually Good Friday, in about five or six weeks, because they don't like what he's saying. I still remember in the 70s listening to Billy Joel saying, only the good die young. Well, okay, that's fine. But then I went, now wait a minute. So we have God's definition. Jesus, I think, gives us a fantastic interpretation of how to apply these, these law, morality laws. But then all of a sudden we have today, and in the church, we have differing views of what morality is. I went, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right. Does that sound right to you? It doesn't sound right to me, but that's exactly what's happening. And it may be more than two groups. I only had like five or six days to think of this. But I thought, how could the... Well, and what they're being called, by the way, let me use the terms, uh, the inside of the United Methodist Church, which is going through this issue at the moment, is we have a group called the traditionalists who like it the way it was, and then we have the progressives they're called who want to change everything. But the underlying question is, who's defining, who's interpreting, use the wrong word, who's interpreting the morality? And then I thought, why? God said it's this, Jesus says, here's how it's interpreted and you apply it. And then we have two groups. Well, one group saying, I like the way Jesus interpreted it. I'm good with that. And then the other side saying something different. How can two different groups read the same material and come up with def different definitions? And that's where you need the paper so you can see what it is. So I started putting it down on paper and do, remembering that for 25, six years, I was in computer work. I like flowcharts. My buddy Mick in the back probably says, I like flowcharts, right? He loves charts. I love charts. So I took a look and said, 
If I'm looking at the morality, of the definition of morality for the church today, where is it coming from? Well, we have the Bible, of course. You'll notice that's there. But inside of the church for 2,000 years, we have had councils. They meet almost every 50 to 75 years. And church councils have made definitions of morality that are not in Scripture. We know that. Augustine's definition of original sin and all that, that's not biblical. But it was part of a church council. We have doctrines. If you want the doctrines of the Methodist church, God love you. They're in the discipline. Read them all. It's like the first 50 or 60 pages. Do that if you have insomnia. Hey, it works. Then we have statements of faith. That was when the Reformation came out. So we have these different denominations, and we all have a statement of faith that's slightly to a lot different. Methodists have one. Lutherans have one. Presbyterians have one. Catholics have We all have it. And I'm, and I'm still like thinking, wait a minute. We're all supposed to be following Jesus' interpretation, right, of the morals that God has said. How can we have 10, 15, 20 different statements of faith? But we do. And then we have what I, I call the theologian works. These are guys along the centuries, on, they're on the far left, that have said, oh, this is what this means. We have some very smart people, Anthem, Anthem, yeah, I can't say it, Aquinas, and Anselm, I can say that. And Luther was another one. And Wesley was another. And each of them are redefining, redefining, reinterpreting. I kept using define until about Thursday. Reinterpreting what they think Jesus said. Okay, well, fine. And all that comes together. Every denomination has a confession of faith or a statement of faith. They tend to call them confessions. They have doctrines. We got them too. We have the 32 articles of religion. I bet everybody has them memorized. No, I don't really have them memorized either. I had to 20 years ago. My memory's not that good anymore. I know the basics. And that gives us this definition. And maybe that word should be interpretation but I had this chart done before I came up with that thought. So you could cross out definition, make it interpretation if you want. The problem is the church became very Greek, very Western, and it got stuck. And each of the denominations that we have say, this is the way it is and the other guys are wrong. Well, that's gonna promote unity, isn't it? Not. All that does is separate more. And then I threw in the monkey wrench that I think messes the whole process up, and that's the culture. Because I was listening to, Emma, I think I mentioned Adam Hamilton, pastor of Church of the Resurrection, Kansas City, writer. He's been here talking to us at annual conference. He's a, Google Adam Hamilton, he's a big shot, if you will, in the Methodist church, and I'm listening to him talk about what happened in February, and I notice that he's not using any Bible references to support his position. And then it occurred to me, 
as I went back and listened to him, he's pulling the culture. So the culture that we live in influences what we think morality is. I went, well, that makes good sense. Because if you go to Africa, if you go to Asia, even parts of Central America, they think differently. Their morality is different because their culture is so different in a lot of these different places. And then I gave us the box societal morality. That's just the culmination of it. And what's interesting about it in the United States is if you travel, you will find that the definition of morality and culture changes as you move between, the, sometimes it's different, between down here and up north. We have a new pastor down in Winterstown who was in the north of the conference for 40 years, and they decided, oh, we're going to move you to the south. You can't get a whole lot further south than, what, Winterstown, Shrewsbury's down there. And he is so confused. First, he doesn't know where the grocery stores are. Well, he does now, but back in July, he was like, where's the grocery stores? I said, you're in Winterstown. you got to go up to Shrewsbury, up to Redline. Okay, that's cool. But we talk in the cluster, and he doesn't understand why we do things the way we do, simple things. Like when I got here in 1980 or so in this area and I asked for pot pie and I was given a plate of noodles. Pot pie has crust, period. Is anyone else from Queens or New York? Pot pie has crust, right Linda? I love your pot pie by the way, I love the noodles, but it has crust. Put the noodles in the crust, I'd be happy. No, I like it either way. But then I show it to you as, as a, on the bottom. Notice I put it in a scale. And let's be honest, and, and I wish people would be more honest, there are some issues that you are probably, and I am, a traditionalist on. There are also certain views that you're probably more on the progressive side. Nobody should be on either extreme. But what happens is there's this polarization inside the church that has caused this polarization. And then nobody talks to each other, which I think is insane. But then I thought about the church and I said, you know, this whole battle that you've heard about, and this whole battle of the, of they went out to St. Louis, spent $3 million and came up with nothing. Is it, is it really a battle of the issue itself or is it a battle of who is going to interpret and define then for us what the morality of the United Methodist Church is? And that's happening in society. It's a spillover from the culture. And maybe the right answer is that we should all learn to live together. I don't know what that answer is either, but it just made me wonder. And in a way, it's kind of scary that the thing that Jesus said to these 12 guys, be safe on the road, that was last week, right? And now he's saying, you might be thrown in jail, you might be killed, you may be flogged. I think flogged is one of the words he used, because your, your understanding of morality, which was Jesus' morality interpretation, is different than the culture you're walking into. 
So even back then, they were having problems. It's interesting to note that in Jesus' day, he would have been on the progressive end of the scale. So I just wondered about that. And each of us then, here's the, the next part, each of us have to take what society calls morality, and guess what we have to do? Each of us decides what's moral and what's not. And you throw that one in because that just confuses the issue even further. So maybe that's the question. But if I have a question about morality, maybe we should be going back into the Gospels. But then when you find something in the Gospel, you have to go back into those first five books called the Law, the Torah, to see what Jesus was interpreting and why he interpreted it the way he did. And think what would happen if we'd all start looking that way. Don't accept what society says and culture says. Think about it and say, I have an issue. Let's go see what Jesus says. And then let's go see what the, what, the, yeah, what the law of God says and how he interprets it. And if we all did that process, maybe we'd learn to work together. Because no matter how you think about it, we all think differently. And again, in different areas of the world, we all think differently. But you would think we could come together. Christ talked about unity. And sometimes I look across and wonder, where is it? Let's turn to Jesus, because that's where the answer is. Enough preaching. Let's sing. I might want you to sing that first song. I love that first song. Did you love that song? He's never played it before. Right? For me, anyway. I love that first song. But let's sing. It's 437.